Peace be with you. A couple of uh, follow-up announcements. First of all, the baptism class that's coming is going to be taught by Joe Haystack, which the uh, rumor on the street is that his nickname is Joey Baptism. And so uh, if, you, if you have questions about baptism, you need, to, you need to come to that class. Let us know that you're joining it, and uh, Joe is ready to roll. So we're excited about that. The second thing um, is that uh, if you were here last Sunday, you maybe saw the slide that on October 1st, we were having donuts and cider. Uh, we had donut holes and cider. And uh, um, the, the word on the street is that the donut holes were gone before most of us were out of the auditorium. So we are, we are running it back. We have three times as many donuts as last week, and they will be out somewhere out here after the service. So, <clears throat> yeah, before you clap too much, if you ate one last week, you cannot eat one this week. <laughs> no, but they'll, they'll be out there. Um, and, uh, and then next week, I think, is apples. Uh, we're going to have some uh, varieties of, of, of apples. So uh, these are just opportunities to linger and, and hang out together. Um, and then I do want to just touch on one uh, pretty serious thing. Um, you probably heard the news um, that over the last uh, uh, day and a half or so, uh, there's been a lot of trauma uh, in, in what we refer to as the Holy Land, uh, Israel and, and, and Palestine. And uh, there was a, a terrorist attack. Uh, a lot of incredible, terrible violence uh, has, been, has happened. Um, there's been a retaliation or a response to that terrorist attack, which is typically how these things go. And, you know, what ends up happening is there's just a whole bunch of Israeli civil, uh, civilians and Palestinian civilians who are getting, uh, uh, taking the brunt of this. Uh, and so the, the military stuff is, is sad enough, but then the loss of, uh, of, of uh, civilian life is, is really, really tragic. And, um, you know, a, a few years ago, 2016, I think, I, I had the chance to, to go there and spend about half, I was there for 18 days, and about half of the days were in Palestine and half of the days were in Israel. And, you know, one of the things coming back from that trip you realize is that anyone who says to you, I have a solution for the Middle East, honestly, you should plug your ears and run away because there, there is no simple solution. It is extremely complicated. There's a lot of really hard, uh, hard details that, that make that situation just, just heartbreaking. And, um, and so we, we need to pray for, uh, I mean, obviously Hamas and, and what, what, what the, uh, the terror that they have uh, invoked is, is, uh, is, is wicked, and we need to pray that that, that is uh, over. And then we need to pray for wisdom for Israel's response, uh, and then we need to pray for uh, all, the, uh, all the civilians uh, in, in between. And, um, you know, you, you, you've heard that phrase, like, it's hard to hate up close. And once you have some friends who are Israelis and you have some friends who are Palestinians, uh, there's a, a complexity that is appropriate that comes to these stories. And you realize that there's, there's real human beings that, that aren't terrorists and that aren't in the military. And they are, uh, these, these things are falling uh, on them too. And so uh, please, please pray for that situation um, and for, uh, for, for, you know, for peace in the Middle East. It's been a, a thing that we've prayed for for a long time. And we want to keep, keep doing that. Uh, okay, so we're in a series in, in the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> and uh, we are finishing Matthew chapter 5 today. So uh, miracles happen. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and uh, and, and here, here's where we're at. We're, we're in this section of, this, of, of, the, of Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7, called the Sermon on the Mount. And he started off with some Beatitudes, kind of like a preamble. And then we've moved into the meat of, of this sermon. And as we've mentioned most weeks, Jesus starts off this kind of this, the meaty section in verse 17, and he says, I want to make it clear, I didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. I didn't come here. I didn't come to get rid of the, the law, um, but I didn't come to just give it a thumbs up either. I came to fulfill it. 
So I didn't come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. So to turn the lights on, to kind of show you, yes, this is the Old Testament truth, but it's, it's, it's richer and deeper than, than you would have guessed. And so Jesus uh, goes about doing that. And part of the way he does that is he uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said, and then he, he says something that the Jewish people would be familiar with, and then he says, but I say to you. And what we realized is that these statements, uh, you have heard, it, heard that it was said, are statements that have kind of become the common, common language in the Jewish culture. Uh, they're not necessarily uh, direct quotes from the Bible. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he usually says, it is written. But here in chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said. And today we're going to run into one of the examples of why we know that that's what he's doing. He's taking these commonly uh, uh, used phrases uh, that are common in their culture, and he's saying, okay, let's, let's look at that. You all know that phrase, uh, but here's what I say about that phrase. And, uh, and, and we've been walking through these together. Uh, the point that Jesus is making is that the religious leaders, because he says the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, these are the ones that are sharing these statements, uh, they were convinced that they had kept the law by their interpretation. So they had drawn a line. This is what it is to obey this commandment uh, from the Old Testament. And then they, they drew the line, and then they lived above the line. And they said, We're, we keep that law. So you, you've heard it said, you should not murder. And then the Pharisees and the scribes didn't murder. And so they said, see, we've kept that, we've kept that commandment. Jesus says, yeah, you shouldn't murder, but it's way deeper than you think. Uh, it's actually all the way down to the anger of your heart. That anger in your heart is under the same umbrella as murder. So if you've had anger in your heart, you can't say, I've kept that commandment. And that's what Jesus is helping his followers understand, that they're not going deep enough. And the invitation to us is, we are not going deep enough. Uh, Jesus is showing us that the problem of sin is not just the stuff that you can see. So today is Matthew uh, part 24. And I want to just, again, remember, uh, Jesus is, is raising the bar. It's what he's doing. He's taking these commandments and he's saying, okay, we all agree that you shouldn't murder, but boy, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you that the, that the call is more significant than that. Not throwing out the Old Testament, but taking it to a new level. Uh, not just about physical acts, not just about murder or adultery. It's also about the heart, about uh, anger and, and lust. And Jesus does this with these six uh, antitheses, you could say, where he takes these statements and he takes the Old Testament statement and then he gives it this new this new sense. So we're going to look at the last two of the antithesis uh, today, and uh, we're going to deal with them together. So first, the, the, the principle of these last, kind of these last 11 verses. You, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You see that in verse 30, uh, 38. And what Jesus would do if he was standing here is he'd hold that up and he'd say, that is true. This is God's instruction uh, you find it in, in multiple places in the Old Testament, but in Leviticus chapter 19 is maybe the most clear one. Um, and God, God is, is, is actually bringing this to bear because it leads to justice, not to vengeance. And over the years, I've had this conversation with some of you in, in our congregation, this recognition that there's a, a desire often when something goes wrong in our life, uh, we, want, we want vengeance, um, but, but what God invites us to consider is justice. And this idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, it was revolutionary. It was revolutionary in the world. It was the law of exact retaliation. Uh, the, the Latin phrase is lax talionis. And what, what that, that's, it's, it's the idea of exact retaliation. 
And that law is not just found in the Jewish culture, but it is found in the Jewish culture. And it was meant to prevent two wrongs. One wrong that this law prevented was severe retribution that did not meet the crime, didn't fit the crime. You know, the, the idea that if you poke out my eye, I want to poke out both of yours. Well, this law says no. The, the punishment is in line with the crime. That's the first thing. The second thing that it prevented was self-appointed vigilante action. So the punishment should fit the crime, and this was given in the, in the law courts. In Leviticus 19, this is being given to the courts of Israel. And so what, what this law is saying is it's going to be in, re, in, re, uh, in relationship to what was done, so that it's going to fit the crime. And then secondly, it's not for a person to go do this. It's for the court to do this. It's the government's job. It's the court's job, not an individual's job. So there is so many rabbit trails we could take today, uh, but I'm just going to say this off the bat. I do not think that this text prohibits, you know, if, if you say, can, can I be in the armed forces? Uh, could I be in law enforcement? Um, so, some people take this text and they come to the conclusion of, of, of absolute pacifism, where you shouldn't, uh, you know, Christians shouldn't serve in the military or Christians shouldn't serve in law enforcement. And our country actually has an exemption that you can have a religious exemption from military service due to a belief that would, that would say, I, I, I think it is, it is sin uh, to, to, to be involved in this kind of violence or to, or to kill, kill another life or to kill another person. And so uh, th there, there are people that take this text and come to that conclusion. I do not think that this text prohibits service in the military or service as a police officer, although I would say that this text would bring caution to that. It would, it would, it would, it would, it would at least invite you into the complexities of stepping into the government's role uh, that God has given to the government. So the Bible says that God gave the sword to the, the, to the government. Um, so this is, not, this is not precluding that. Um, but I do have bad news for some of you. It does preclude the career field of being Batman. Um, you, 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 I know. It's, it, I was devastated. He's my, he's my favorite uh, superhero. Um, but it, the, the, this, uh, this idea of being a, a vigilante, of taking uh, violence or taking um, retribution into your own hands... And so, although the joke about Batman is true, you shouldn't be Batman, it goes way, way deeper than that. It actually is stepping on your toes in regard to the responses to the wrong things that are done to you in your life. And it is clearly meant to be disruptive. Maybe you've heard the quote that um, is often attributed to, to Gandhi, um, but the, the quote goes something like this, an eye for an eye just makes the whole world blind. Uh, that, that is a severe misunderstanding. It's a severe misunderstanding of the nature of the world uh, thousands of years ago, and it's also a severe misunderstanding of just the principle itself, uh, that, that, that this is not individual people running around and poking out other people's eyes. Uh, this is a call for, in the courts of Israel, Leviticus 19, in the courts of Israel, for the crime to be brought by the state, for the punishment to be brought by the state, and it should be in light of the crime that is committed. So when you think about that then in your own personal life and a wrong that has happened to you, you know, our typical response to being wronged is to crush the other person. It, it's to actually overreact to that. You know, again, you, I, you poke out my eye, I'm going to poke out both of your eyes. It's this sense of revenge. It's this desire to, to you know, scorched earth. 
Like, you, you, you criticized me, and how dare you do that, and I'm going to tear you down. I'm going to destroy everything about you. Uh, another uh, movie uh, reference, maybe some of you have seen John Wick, which is now has like 41 episodes or uh, versions. But in the first one, he, he goes and he like literally kills everyone because they killed his dog. It's like his dog gets killed and then he goes and kills everyone. This is the kind of stuff this passage is talking about. This is our natural response. Something happens to us and we want to respond times 10 or times two. And Jesus says, no, that, 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 that's not right. You've heard this phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and you're right. That's in the Old Testament, and that's for the good of society. That's a right principle. Just like Jesus said, you've heard it said that you should not murder. Jesus is like, right, you shouldn't murder. You've heard it said you should not commit adultery. Right, you shouldn't commit adultery. But Jesus says that's not all there is to say about this. That's not all there is to say. It's not just, um, it's not just that simple. There's more, uh, more going on. Uh, you know, verse 38 is a direct quote from the Bible and its instruction to the judges of Israel as they rule in the courts. However, what seems like's happened is that the Jewish leaders had expanded this from the realm of the law courts, where it was supposed to be, into the realm of personal relationships, where it doesn't belong. And so uh, historians believe that what was happening was there was actually this personal retribution that was being authorized and, and they were using the Old Testament, in a sense, as a, as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They were bringing this kind of personal uh, retribution into the world, and they were saying, well, the, you know, Leviticus 19 says we can do that. And so they were bringing it from the, the world of the courts into the personal relationships. And like all these other times, murder and adultery, Jesus is saying, eye for an eye, as a sentence from a judge, yes, that is right, but you're not going deep enough. You're not wrestling with this enough. You're not asking the harder questions about the way that I want you to interact with the people in your life, even the people who have mistreated you, even the people who have done something wrong to you. And Jesus wants to go deeper. And now listen, I am well aware of this. I, 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 actually, I'm not well aware of everyone's story. I'm aware of some of the stories in this room. And when we talked the first week, I know that there are some stories in this room where that hits really close to home this idea of, of murder and anger and insults and your own story having experienced some of those very things, uh, the subject of, of adultery and lust of the heart. And I know that some of your stories touch very, very close uh, to, 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 that, to that teaching. And so I, I, I come and I, I want to say, I, I recognize the severity of, of, of these, um, these calls of Jesus. They are meant to be disruptive. Jesus is giving a vision of life in his kingdom. He says this is the good life. He doesn't say this is the easy life. He starts off with these beatitudes that are all upside down. They all feel upside down. No one would say, you know, blessed is, the, is the, uh, those who mourn. We don't think that the people who are mourning are the ones who are flourishing. Jesus says they're the ones who are flourishing. Jesus gives us this upside down view of the world. And he says, it's not what you think. The, the, the way that it works is, is contrary to a lot of our natural thoughts. And so as we come to this subject of maybe someone who has mistreated you, I want to say, I, I, I might not know your personal story, but I recognize that this might feel like, are you kidding me? Jesus is really saying this? Jesus is really calling me to this? Because right after he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this is what he says. This is what Jesus says. But I say to you, do not resist the evil one. 
or do not resist the one who is evil. This is complicated. This is really complicated because in the New Testament, uh, we have multiple references to resisting. This same exact Greek word is used multiple times, and it's also used multiple times in context of, of evil. And so, uh, just uh, to, to kind of, I'm not going to reference all the references here, but just the idea. The New Testament tells us that we should resist the devil, and it refers to the devil often as the evil one. And so the Bible actually would say, no, we are supposed to resist the evil one. And then we have examples throughout the New Testament of evil actions being resisted. And that very word, resist, is actually uh, in, 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 uh, used in those texts. And so when we wrestle with this phrase, what is Jesus saying when he says to us, do not resist the one who is evil? He is not saying that there is no responsibility for us to resist the devil. Uh, that, that is clear from the pages of the Bible that we are to resist the devil. And he's also not saying that we should never resist evil, that we should just turn a, turn a blind eye to evil going on in the world. What he says is, do not resist the one who is evil. Uh, a simple way to try to say this, it's a complicated thing, but a simple way to try to say it is Jesus is talking about retaliating against an evil person. And by evil person, he means someone who has done something wrong, some, uh, uh, specifically some, done something wrong to you. And then Jesus gives four kind of controversial and, again, complicated examples. Uh, if you look at verses 39 through 42, um, he says, uh, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so he gives these, these four statements and they all feel relatively heavy. And three, at least three of them are pretty applicable to our current moment. Uh, the, the third one, uh, to go one mile and go a second mile, that we, we don't have that same cultural dynamic that they would have had, but we actually use some similar language. Go the extra mile. We, we, we say those kinds of phrases, to, to go the extra mile with someone. Uh, and so Jesus is bringing some illustrations to try to show what he means by not resisting the one who is evil. And uh, if you read those four, you might be like, um, verses 39 through 42 sound like a problem. And uh, I would understand if, if, you, if you felt like that. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment here. But he, here's the point. Murder is wrong, but you have to go deeper to see that anger is the original problem of the heart. Adultery is wrong, but you have to go deeper to see that lust is the original problem of the heart. Here, Jesus is saying an eye for an eye is right as far as a justice practice, a judicial practice. But you have to go deeper to see that the original problem of the heart is vengeance and punishment. That what's actually going on in most of our hearts when something wrong happens is we want vengeance, we want punishment, and we want it now. We want that person to pay, and we usually want them to pay extra. We, we, we want there to be a severe response. Uh, Jesus is getting to the heart of being wronged. And Jonathan Pennington puts it this way. Jesus is saying, don't be a vengeful, vigilante, uh, self-distributor of justice. That, that, that's the point that Jesus is making in these first few verses. And that is rooted in believing that God is the just judge. That God has given to our world, government, through the, 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 through the courts, 
uh, that, that justice is supposed to be doled out. And you might look and say, I'm, I'm not saying that you would say this, but maybe you look at our court system and you say, that thing's a mess. What are you talking about? Trust that? Uh, do you have any idea of what the condition of things were in the first century? It was, it was a mess. It was a mess with the Jewish courts. It was a mess with the Roman courts. Uh, Jesus obviously was, was sentenced to death with a kangaroo court. Uh, there's all kinds of corruption going on in the first century. And so we don't get to exempt ourselves and say, yeah, I don't trust our courts. You, know, you could make the case that our courts are about as good as they get, uh, about as good as they've been uh, in, in the history of the world. And so even if the courts are not uh, what we would want them to be, this actually is rooted not specifically in the fact that the court's going to get it right. It's rooted in the fact that God is a just judge, that there's actually an authority above all of it, and we can, we can trust him. Uh, there's also the sense here where uh, Jesus is tapping into this idea that we've seen throughout the sermon, and that is that there's a whole person righteousness, a, a deeper righteousness that Jesus says. Remember in verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, there's no kingdom for you. Unless it exceeds, unless you have a greater righteousness. And what he means is a whole person righteousness. And so he's saying, you don't just get to excuse yourself and poke somebody's eye out as a vigilante. And you don't, it, it, it's, you're not going deep enough. You actually have to get down into your heart and say, what do I want to have happen to the person who's wronged me? What's, what's, you know, let's be honest about the vengeance that bubbles up in my heart. Let's, let's be honest about the fact that I sometimes do want to be a vigilante. Like, I, I'm, I, I know that I was joking about Batman, uh, but I, I will tell you, uh, living in this community now for a long time, uh, there, there's been an, a, a whole bunch of stories, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, where you, you, you probably want to be a vigilante. You, you probably want to go somewhere in the middle of the night and take out that father, or take out that mother, or take out that sibling, or take out that member of this community. Like, you just want to take them out. Like, literally take them out. I, I've had those feelings. I, I've seen those, those kinds of traumas and those kinds of stories. And if your heart is there, I get it. Jesus is asking you, would you be willing to examine that? Would you be willing to look at that? Would you be willing to consider maybe what's going on in your heart and whether or not that is in line with this kingdom life that Jesus is inviting us into? Then Jesus takes this, these first few verses, and I think he fleshes it out even further. And he gets to what many scholars believe is the climax uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And by the way, that is found nowhere in the Old Testament. And so this has just become kind of what you might call like folk wisdom. It's kind of become a statement that's accepted. Um, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard that phrase? That's kind of like just a phrase that's become accepted. That's not something you find in the Bible. And same, same thing here, uh, this idea of love your neighbor and hate your enemy, that had become an accepted phrase, but that's not found in the Old Testament. Uh, the, the most charitable explanation you could give is that there are, there are multiple examples in the Old Testament of God having severe things to say about his enemies. And so you could see how the Jewish people were saying, okay, we are definitely called to love each other. We're called to love our fellow Israelites. But look at how God has, has condemned his enemies. And so, you know, we, we're going to apply this our way, and that frees us to love our neighbors and to hate our enemies. Uh, that would be the most charitable way. But even if that's it, it's a wrong application. And so either it's flat out wrong, or it's a wrong application of Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament teaching. 
Um, and, and, and so Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let, let's, let's talk about how Jesus illustrates this. <clears throat> let's try to work through maybe some of the illustrations or the applications of, of his teaching. Uh, John Stott, he, he says that this is the highest point in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and that these two contrasts that we get where he says, you've heard it said, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, um, uh, whatever he says in verse 39, do not, do not, do not resist the one who is evil. Um, and then this next one where he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. John Stott says this is the, this is the absolute highest, it's the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. It's as high as it gets, and that these two contrasts are the most admired and the most despised of all of the, of all the Sermon on the Mount. People, you know, think about this. On the one hand, you could see these examples as displaying extraordinary self-control, extraordinary kindness, and you could see why this passage is admired. People look at this and they're like, oh my word, could you imagine having someone be your enemy, having someone mistreat you and respond with love? Could you imagine by responding with prayer? I, I can't imagine it. And it's like, it's like admired. But on the other hand, they seem really scary. Verses 39 through 42 seems like Jesus might be saying that we should let ourselves be taken advantage of. If you've ever really been taken advantage of physically or sexually or emotionally or financially, then you know how terrible that probably sounds. And you could look at these verses and say, man, I'm, I'm, I'm committed as a follower of Jesus and I take his word seriously. I try to, you know, a phrase I like is like, we do what the king says. But this is, this is scary if that's what Jesus is calling us to. And you can quickly see why this teaching could be despised or why it could be hated. And especially if it's a present reality, if it's part of your story that's real right now, if someone has wronged you right now, if someone is threatening you right now, you could see how this passage is hard to hear. And if it sounds hard, if it sounds upside down, then I, I guess I would say with, with, with a level of tenderness that this is the Sermon on the Mount. That this is what Jesus seems to be doing to us. He is turning things upside down and he is saying to us, your natural way of navigating this, there's a better way. And I'm inviting you into the better way. And it might not make sense, but that's the journey of trusting me. This is the journey of following Jesus. So, what, what is Jesus actually saying? What, what are these illustrations? Well, well let's, let's talk about being slapped in, in, the, in the face. You know, do you realize that being slapped on the cheek, it, it, it is very unlikely that that means that that person is trying to beat you up. It is very unlikely that it means that person is trying to kill you. Uh, most people do not resort to a slap to try to kill you. Uh, if you wanted to kill someone, you would, you would shoot them or you would you know, like, stab them. Like, you, you would do something with way, way, way more force than a slap. Uh, it's possible that you may have been slapped in your face at some point in time, and my guess is that you can look back and say, oh yeah, that person wasn't actually trying to beat me up. They were uh, deeply offended, or they were trying to insult me. And in this culture, in the Jewish culture, that's exactly what this is. You, you don't slap somebody on the cheek when you're trying to beat them up. You, you, you slap them on the cheek when you're trying to insult them. It was culturally understood as an insult in that culture. And so what Jesus is saying is, when someone insults you, turn the other cheek, meaning this, you don't actually have to worry about your dignity. 
You actually don't have to try to save face. You actually don't have to worry about your reputation. Not like that. And Jesus is saying this from someone who actually has credibility here. Jesus had a reputation of being insulted and not insulting people back. He's actually referenced later in the New Testament. Peter talks about the fact that this was a mark of Jesus, that he was insulted and he did not insult back. Jesus and several of his followers were physically beaten and they did not retaliate. Legal proceedings. We get accounts of Jesus going through legal proceedings and we get accounts of Paul going through legal proceedings. And at various times, both Jesus and Paul, they do make an objection in their proceedings. They, they basically say, hey, wh what's happening here is not right. And we, you know, we, we, uh, we plead that you reconsider this, this way of doing it. In John 18, we see that. In Acts 25, we see that. You're doing wrong to me, and I appeal to the law because what you're doing is not legal. So it's not that you're not allowed to speak up. Jesus spoke up. Paul spoke up. But they did not physically attack. They did not verbally abuse in response to their abuse. And again, how do most of us handle our insults? You know, we, get, we get insulted, and our first thought is like, do you know who I am? Do you, do you know who I am? I am going to sue you for everything you're worth. How dare you have the audacity to criticize me, to insult me, to embarrass me? Jesus is saying that a Christian is someone who does not have to defend their reputation. Not, not, not like that. You can actually turn the other cheek. You can get insulted and, 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 and like not have to overreact to that. You, you can actually re-enter that relationship with another cheek exposed. You seek justice, yes. But the call here is to actually forgive. If someone wants to sue you, he says in verse 40, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, he does not mean that if someone is physically abusing you or others, that you let them keep doing it. It doesn't mean that if someone is robbing you, that you would say, oh, uh, I know you're getting ready to go, but you forgot the drawer with the jewelry in it. That, that, is, that is not what Jesus is suggesting when he says that they're taking your tunic, uh, offer your cloak uh, as well. What, 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 he, what he does mean is about the same thing as he means with the, the turning of the cheek. You turn the other cheek, you give them the tunic, you go the second mile because you don't want to close the door to relationship. That, 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 that's, that's the premise here, that Jesus is actually saying, remember, we're not talking about the court system. We're not talking about the courts. I, I, I affirm that, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that's the court system. And that's right, and that's how society stays balanced. But I'm telling you, in your relationships, how I want you to handle the people who wrong you is to actually do your best to not close the door on the relationship. Do you remember the Beatitudes? Remember who Jesus said is flourishing? He went through a whole list, and the last two are people who are persecuted. People who are getting, 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 getting like, uh, they're getting um, mistreated. And Jesus says they're, they're flourishing. This is actually, there's actually an upside-down kingdom going on here. Remember, this, court, this teaching is not about the court system. It's about personal relationships. Our natural response to destroy the other person and to cut them out of our life, Jesus says, no. That, that, that is not the way that I want you to go about this. But when somebody wrongs you, 
Jesus is suggesting that there really is a Christian approach to it, that there really is a Christian way of going about this. And I think that that's what Jesus is doing in verses 43 through 48. So if what I just said about the idea of turning the other cheek, giving them your coat, uh, going the extra mile, if if that stuff unsettles you, here's here's what I think Jesus is meaning um, as as we try to to reference this this call to, to love. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is saying that both your deeds and your words matter. He's saying that what you do, he gave some actions, that those matter, but your words matter too. He actually says that my people are going to have the audacity to pray for the people who are persecuting them, to actually verbalize to the God of heaven like that, that God would be at work in their life, to actually go to God on their behalf for their good. I used the phrase earlier, it's hard to hate up close. And I think that that's part of what Jesus is calling us into here is this recognition that if we, are, if we are going to be praying for our enemy, it is going to be harder and harder for us to hate them. Because not only are we verbalizing these things where we're longing for their good, but we're actually having the God of heaven reorient our hearts to his good design. John Stott said the only limit to Christian generosity is the limit which love itself may impose. This is what children of God do because children act like their parent. You see that in verse 45? He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So he says, this this idea of loving your enemies and praying for your enemies, you know what that's like? That's like children of God because this is how God functions. And what's the illustration he gives? He says, have you noticed how the world works? Have you noticed that when the sun comes up, the sun does not just shine on the followers of Jesus? If if it shines on everybody. Have you noticed when the rain comes, it does not just water the crops of the Christian farmers? It waters the crops of everybody. Have you noticed when you take a bite of an apple, it's not just the children of God that get to taste the goodness of an apple. Everybody gets to taste the goodness of the apple. This is what theologians call common grace. And it's this idea that God has filled the world with immeasurable gifts that everybody gets to benefit from. Even if you're not a child of God, everybody gets to benefit from those gifts. God pours it out on the world generously for everybody to taste of, for everybody to benefit from. And so what is is many of the people on the earth? What's the condition? Well, the Bible says that sin actually separates us from God. And in the book of Romans, we find out that sin makes us enemies with God. So when God allows the sun to rise and shine on everybody's face, a a, a percentage of the people who, who are receiving that sun are actually enemies of God because they have not run to God through Christ and their sin is still separating them from God, which the Bible says put them, puts them at enmity with God or they're enemies with God. And so God gives his gifts to people who are both his children and who are his enemies. And when you and I live this way, where we actually love our enemies and we pray for our enemies, we're acting like our father. We're acting like kids who have a father who does this. And you could say like more is caught than taught. How does God work in the world? This is how he works. How should we work in the world? This is how we should work. God pours out so many gifts on the world many on many of whom are enemies with him. But if you're a Christian, 
If you have run to God through Christ, if you have asked for Jesus to actually rescue you from your sin, then the Bible says that Jesus makes you at peace with God. The war is over, and you are adopted into his family, and now you have eyes to see the world this way. You have the eyes to see the world and to love your enemies and to pray for them. That's why Jesus ends in verse 48 with this call to be whole or to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not just saying, try as good as you can, you can't, you'll never get there. No, he's saying that your, your Father in heaven has this whole righteousness all the way down. Every bit of him is righteous. And that's what we're pursuing. Is not just we don't murder, but we actually deal with the anger of our heart, internal and external. We don't, we don't commit adultery, but we also deal with the lust of our heart. We, we, we don't just say the courts are going to get them. We actually deal with the, the, the vengeance that wells up in our heart. Jesus says, this, this is the whole person righteousness that I'm calling you to. This is, this is the righteousness that you should be pursuing. It's the good life. He goes on to say, if you just love the people who love you, in other words, the people who are easy to love or who make sense to love, people who benefit you if you love them, then there's nothing unique about you at all. There's nothing unique about you at all. He says, this is what everybody does. Everybody loves people who are easy to love. Everybody loves people who it makes sense to love. Everybody loves people who will benefit them. Everybody does that. And then he does, he does something a little uh, interesting. He, he names categories that the average Jew would hate. He names Gentiles and tax collectors. And he says, you're just in a bucket with them. You're, you're no, the, the people that you despise, you're no different than them. If it's all you do is love the people who are easy to love, you're, you're just like the very people that you think are the worst people. He says there's a better way. Christian, you can love people, including your enemies, without having to defend your reputation, without having to run around and demand that you get yours. Now, I, I want to say this pretty clearly. John Stott's quote, which I think is on the screen, the only limit to Christian generosity is the limit which love itself may impose. There is a limit that love itself would impose. For example, it is not loving to allow someone to continue to hurt you because it's not, allowing, it's, it's not loving to allow a person to destroy another person or to allow that person to destroy themselves. That is not a loving action. You see, it's good to love your enemy. It's good to turn the other cheek. But at some point in time, love itself says, this has got to stop. This has got to stop because that's not loving to that person. It's not loving to yourself. We have now crossed the limits of love itself. Now, love is going to stretch us. And I think we know our, our work, our coworkers, members of our family, there's a lot of situations where we're going to feel like we're enemies and we can hear the teaching of Jesus and say, man, I, I need to turn my other cheek here. But there is a limit to that love where the love itself says, this has got to stop. It's no longer loving to allow you to do that, to allow you to continue down that path. It's not loving to allow a person to destroy another person. It's not loving to allow a person to destroy themselves. But can you see how different the motivation of love is? It's not, it's not vengeance. It's not your reputation. It's actually for the good of the world. It's actually saying that, that there, there's a way I can navigate the world that is motivated from love. 
You know, Jesus, when he is asked what is the greatest commandment, he says it's all about love. It's to love the Lord your God with everything you've got and then to love your neighbor as yourselves. And in the Gospel of Luke, we get a parable from Jesus where he makes it crystal clear that your neighbor is everybody. And so Jesus here is saying, including your enemy. And your motivation to navigate the world is love. Sometimes love means you stop that, that behavior. But the motivation for moving in the world is love. Jesus wants us to love others so much that we go to extremes to help them. That's what Francis Chan said. Jesus is saying that if you have been made spiritually alive, then you actually have the resources to see the world in a different way. So let, let me close with, with an example. Uh, in in, in uh, the book of Acts, which is a, a few books to your right, so if you want to turn over there, in Acts chapter 7, uh, we have a, a situation where one of the followers of Jesus, named Stephen, is uh, preaching the gospel. And he's actually doing something kind of like what Jesus is doing. He's rehearsing the Old Testament, and he's saying, guys, you're not going to believe this. All this stuff in the Old Testament, it, be like, it, be, it, goes like, it goes like crazy good when you shine the light of Jesus on it. And so he preaches this sermon, and he revisits the Old Testament, and he shows how Jesus Christ is the climax. Jesus Christ is, is the point. And Stephen shows us how he loves his enemies while he is being stoned to death. And that's the account that we have in Acts chapter 7. If you look at verse 54, towards the end of the, the, the chapter there, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged that he would say these things about, about the Old Testament and about Christ. And they ground their teeth at him. Um, and, and, and further down, you find out, uh, verse 58, that they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who eventually is Paul, and as, as they were stoning Stephen. So they, 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 are, they are killing this guy, and as they're killing him, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. He, he, he died. While Stephen is being killed, he is doing this very thing. He is loving and praying for his enemies. Now, where, where do you think Stephen got that idea? Maybe as a son of the father? Maybe as a child of God, just like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5? Maybe he saw Jesus do this on the cross, where Jesus hung on the cross dying, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And not that much longer, not that much later, here's Stephen being killed. And as he's being killed, he looks at the people killing him, and he's praying for them. He's asking God for, like, he's, he's, he's uh, uh, pleading to God on their behalf. Don't hold this against them. You know, Stephen was what you might refer to as a fundamentalist. If you go back and read his sermon, he takes a strict understanding of the scripture, a literal understanding of the scripture. And in our culture right now, our world does not like fundamentalism. It doesn't like fundamentalists. Like you turn on a news station and fundamentalist is like thought of as a bad word. Whether it's a Christian fundamentalist or a uh, Islamic fundamentalist, like fundamentalist has a really bad connotation. But here's, here's what the Bible would actually say. It matters what your fundamental is. Because, you know, there's, there's several incredible stories over the last few years. We've referenced them here. There's uh, an Amish school that was, that multiple children were, were, were killed back in 2006. And after that event happened, the Amish, who are pretty fundamentalist, they, they came out 
and they forgave the shooter. In 2015, there was a gunman who went into a, 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 um, an A&E church uh, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, and he killed nine African-American members while they were at a Bible study. And if you go and watch what they said in court, what their family members said in court, person after person after person forgave that shooter. You see, it matters what your fundamental is because if your fundamental, the fundamental of your faith is one who died for their enemies, then it will change the way that you see the world. It'll change the way that you navigate the stuff that you face. And it won't make you a hater. It will make you a lion. It will make you a lion of love, and it will make you a lion for love. And it will be the dominant way in which you pursue the things around you, even when you're the victim, even when it falls on you, that you will be filled with love. And like these Amish parents and like these African-American members of the AME church, you're going to stand up and actually say, in the face of the most wicked thing I've ever experienced, I actually have, I have, I have resources to forgive that person just like Jesus did on the cross and just like Stephen did as he was being stoned, to look at those who are harming us and to actually find a place for forgiveness. Stephen did it. Jesus did it. More recently, Martin Luther King wrote extensively on this desire that he had to model something and, and to model this, this, this forgiving and this forgiveness. And you know what he said? If it works, then we are going to actually bring, bring love into the world and we're going to win over our dissenters, and it's a double win. It's a double win. There's this beautiful reality of love winning the day. Jesus suffered, MLK suffered, Stephen suffered, all the church, you know, all the church martyrs, they suffered. They knew what was happening to them was evil, but they could also see what the hate was doing to the people that were killing them. They actually saw that the hate was destroying them. And it gave them this level of, of, of compassion towards the very people that were wronging them. You know, what is the fundamental of your faith? Is it a man who died for his enemies? Because if it is, it's going to lead you to love. Steve, Stephen is modeling a whole person righteousness that Jesus says we have to have in Matthew 5, 48. But there's one more piece to Stephen's story that I want to close with. I want you to see what Stephen sees. In verses 55 and 56, if you have your Bibles, look, look at it. Stephen sees Jesus at the throne of God. In verses 55 and 56, this is what Acts tells us. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you say, why does that matter? What, like, you know, okay, so he had a hallucination. No, no, that's not a hallucination. This, this is exactly what, what's happening. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus went back to be with the Father. But when the Bible talks about Jesus being in heaven, it usually says that he is seated. That he, uh, he went back to the Father and he is seated at his right hand. But when Stephen looks up there, what does he see Jesus doing? He sees Jesus standing Listen, the throne of God is a courtroom. And as Stephen is facing his death from evil people who are, who, are, who are literally killing him, he is looking at this courtroom, at this throne room, and he sees someone standing. You know what that, that means? That they are advocating. And who is standing there advocating? It is Jesus who is advocating on his behalf. The earthly courtroom is condemning Stephen. 
But the heavenly courtroom is commending him. There was nobody on earth speaking up for Stephen. They all put their coats down, picked the rocks up, and killed him. No one was speaking up for him. But in heaven, someone was speaking up for him. In heaven, Jesus was advocating for Stephen. And it's not because Stephen was such a good guy. It's because Stephen was in Christ. Listen, our confidence and our assurance never comes from looking at ourselves. It comes from this realization, this consequence of actually looking at Christ. And on our best day or on our worst day, we are reminded that the only one who really matters is standing and advocating in our place for us. It's not about our performance. It's not about whether we're being treated the way we should be treated. We have an advocate who stands in our place and stands for us. And you know what that did for Stephen? It showed him that the heavenly courtroom is the only one that matters. That what Jesus has to say about him is the only opinion that really matters. And it allowed him in the face of his death to pray for the people that were killing him. Now we come back to this passage and we say, what about when you get insulted? What about when you get the figurative slap in the face? Do you, do you need to burn the world down? I feel that. Do you want the person that embarrassed you to pay? Do you want them to be embarrassed twice as bad? Do you want them to be insulted twice as bad? Jesus is saying, I'm giving you resources that change the way you see the world. And love can actually be on the forefront. And you can, in your worst moment of your life, actually look out and have love lead the way. Actually offer forgiveness in the face of tragedy. What Jesus says about Stephen is the only thing that matters. What Jesus says about you is the only thing that matters. It frees you to love people. It frees you to not have to worry about your reputation, to make sure you get yours, but actually let love lead the way. Jesus stands as your advocate in the only courtroom that matters. All you have to do is run to him. Have you seen him? Have you seen who Jesus is? Do you recognize that he wants to be the advocate for you? Man, that invitation is wide open. And if you don't know what we're talking about, man, there will be a couple prayers uh, during our communion time. Uh, one is a, one for somebody who's seeking for the truth, and, somebody, and the second prayer is for someone who's trying to figure out the language of what does it mean to believe in this Jesus. I invite you to consider those um, as, as we pray. If our servers will please come. Let's go to the table. God, thank you for this text, and we thank you for hard things. God, we, we, I stand here right now recognizing this is a hard thing. That for some in this room right now, they have a very fresh reality of having been wronged, of having uh, an evil person in their midst, of having someone around them who is, uh, who is maybe not, not, not safe. God, I pray that you give them wisdom. I pray that love would lead the way, that you would change their motivations. God, we recognize that sometimes love draws the line and says this can't keep going. It's not loving to allow this to continue to go. God, I pray you give them wisdom and courage. God, we're, we're, we're here for those conversations. We're here to walk with anyone in that situation. But God, for so many of the situations in our life where we feel vengeance welling up, where we feel retribution, where we want to be a vigilante, where we want to take justice into our own hands, God, would you give us this vision? Would you help us to see what Stephen sees? Would you help us to realize that if we've run to Jesus, he now stands in our place he advocates for us, and his opinion, the only opinion that really matters, is one of commendation, one of approval, one that wins the smile of God for us. God, we need your help. This is, this is, these are complicated things to live through. Pray that you give us soft hearts.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.